0: This is a podcast cast for the AP European History students of Bosman High School. My name is Dave. But students, this is the second in our series about Eastern European absolutism. Uh, we'll deal predominantly with uh, the rise of Austria and the rise of Prussia in this podcast, uh, otherwise known as the first part of our rise of the rap. Um, first of all, the first thing, let's take a look at Austria. First off, uh, and remember the characteristics. You have to keep in mind the characteristics of. Mm, uh, of what we talked about yesterday in Eastern European uh, absolutism and how it came into being. Uh, and the first thing we want to look at is the rise of Austria and how that comes into being. What you get is that Austria, you got to remember, is traditionally selected as the Holy Roman Empire. This is where you have the Habsburg Line. Uh, however, that Habsburg Line, after the Spanish War of Spanish Secession and after the Treaty of Utrecht, um, and the Treaty of Utrecht was 1713, the War of Spanish Secession was 1701, 1713, Um, After that, the Spanish throne uh, is now occupied with the Bavones and the Habsburg have actually lost power in Western Europe, and so they start to concentrate more uh, of their power and more of their emphasis in Eastern Europe. Um, What you get is the Treaty of Utrecht is actually the Habsburg lands, or the Habsburg Empire after the Treaty of Utrecht uh, is going to be including Naples, Sardinia, Milan, and Italy, Naples Sardinia and Milan in Italy uh Austria Netherlands which is modern day Belgium uh Hungary and Transylvania which is modern day Romania um you can see those areas on or you can see most of those areas on the map you know, about where it's sort of where the Austrian Empire is and what that means what that equates to is that the Habsburg rule in the Holy Roman Empire um or I'm sorry the Habsburg what that equates to basically is that you get a, a very large disorganized um, multi-ethnic sort of nationality that is going to be associated with the Habsburg rule uh, and that's going to lead to um, some pretty massive sort of uh, attempts at stabilization and centralization of the Habsburg line. Um, basically what you get is the Habsburg rule is going to be completely ineffective in the Roman Empire uh, and it's going to force the monarchs to turn their attention inward and eastward to consolidate their device holdings into a strong unified state. So all these holdings that they have, they want to try and find a way to actually consolidate them and get them into be one unified uh, individual state. Um, but the first step of that is going to be is the reorganization of Bohemia. Um, and that's a major step actually towards absolutism. Uh, but what you get is that in Bohemia, you have the Czech nobility. Um, that Czech nobility is wiped out during the Bohemian phase of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, you get Ferdinand II. Who is 1619 to 1637? Uh, he's going to redistribute all the Czech lands to aristocratic sol- or aristocratic soldiers from all over Europe, um, and then what you get is that conditions for serfdom for the conditions for the serfs are going to decline. So basically, what you get is this reorganization uh, and re-centralization of, boh- of Bohemia underneath the Habsburg rule, um, the hereditary provinces of Austria proper. Uh, are going to be centralized by Ferdinand III in 1637 um, to 16, or his dates are 1637 to 1657. seven uh, Ferdinand 's actually going to create a standing army, which is one of the characteristics we talked about in the last podcast about Eastern European absolutism. Um, and then, and then the last, uh, the third, and the largest part. Um, or the you know the last sort of the consolidation and unifying their state is going to be through Hungary uh, which they're going to annex and it's going to become part of their domain Um, and what you get basically is that all of these different areas that they have combining are again dissonant ethnicities different sort of backgrounds and that's going to be a fairly uh, massive impact um, on the way that the Habsburgs are going to be actually to control uh, their surroundings um, by the way, in Hungary, to give you another example of this sort of ethnicity differences, uh, the Magmars are going to be the, the, the dominant cultural group inside of Hungary. Um, so what does uh, the the government of Austria, of the Austrian Empire actually look like? And the important thing to remember is that when you see this and they, the, how they've consolidated their power and sort of uh, picked and chosen the... the, the nationalities that they actually might might want their empire to include. What you get is that Austria is not a unified state at all. Um, Inside of Austria proper, you're going to have Germans and Italians. Uh, Bohemia has Czechs. Hungary is going to have Hungarians and Serbs and Croats and Romanians. Um, All of these different people have their own ethnicities. All of them have their own religions, or not their own religions, but have their own ethnicities, have their own cultural backgrounds, Um, and don't necessarily want to be governed by one central monarch. so what you get is that no single constitutional system or administration is actually going to exist in the empire, um, and each region is going to have its legal represent uh, relationship to, had a different legal relationship to the emperor, uh, be it through marriage, be it through conquer, through whatever it might be, through force or loyalty, um, each one of these regions is going to have a different idea of how they should bond to the emperor, um, or how they should actually bond to the ruler. So let's take a look at some of those important rulers of Habsburg of the Habsburg house. The first one is Ferdinand II. Um, this is the one that this is the person that takes control over Bohemia during the 30 Years War, um Ferdinand the 3rd, uh 1637 to 1657. He's going to centralize the government in the hered- the old hereditary provinces of Austria proper. And then one of the most important uh would be Leopold I. Uh he, he's 1658 to 1705. Uh, and the reason that Leopold I is so important is going to be, um, the fact that he's going to severely restrict Protestant worship, uh, and then also it's going to be because he is going to successfully defend, um... The siege of the Vienna, or defend against the siege of Vienna, that is attempted by the Turks. Uh, the Turks are going to try and invade Vienna in 1683. Leopold I will it will stop that invasion. Uh, and what it actually turns out to be is sort of a um, a pushback as the as the Ottoman Turks are, are are retreating. It's actually Leopold that goes out uh, and uses its forces to sort of go out and try and conquer some more of that land. Um, you're also going to see Emperor Charles VI uh and he's going to be the most important for future references because of what he manages to do uh he in 1713 is going to get all the other major uh leaders inside of europe to actually sign on to a th- to a thing called the pragmatic sanction and what that ensures is that the habsburg pro- uh, the, the habsburgs their possessions are never going to be able to be divided uh and it will always be passed intact to a single heir And the reason that that's so important is that his daughter, Maria Theresa, is going to actually inherit that empire. Uh, And she's actually going to rule for 40 years. However, you're going to see as we move throughout this that there's going to be some major issues with Maria Theresa as far as uh, whether or not people respect her rule or whether or not people actually respect the pragmatic sanction that Charles VI, Emperor Charles VI, gets everyone to sign in 1713. Um let's talk a little bit about Prussia here and how kind of economy put that on the back burner, put Maria Theresa on the back burner and put the pragmatic sanction. Uh remember those terms are going to become incredibly important as we deal with Prussia. Um Prussia, the first thing you gotta know is it's the House of Hall Ho- of Hosen Hollander House of Hollander Um brief background about or brief, brief background about uh Brandenburg. Um, ruler Brandenburg is going to be designated as one of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire. Remember that's how the Holy Roman Empire actually gets its actual emperors, that you have certain states that are going to be allowed to elect it uh, or elect him. By the 17th century though, Brandenburg is not significantly involved with Holy Roman affairs. Remember we talked about in the rise, the characteristics of the rise of Eastern absolutism is that you get um, the weakening of the Holy Roman Empire because of its uh, differences in religion and because of the religious wars. Um, so by by the seventeenth century, Brandenburg, which will become Prussia, um, is not involved with those Holy Roman affairs at all. Marriages are going to increase uh, the size and control of the of the Hollanders' control of German principalities in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you can see that from the map on the powerpoint and I highly recommend you take a look at that. Uh they start to get little sort of island pockets if you will of estates th- uh, throughout the uh throughout the Holy Roman Empire. Um they get those through marriages um and basically what they do is they start to sort of get state by state by state more and more power. Um but the prince has little power over the nobility uh and again that's another characteristic of the rise of Eastern Absolutism is that the prince is going to see himself more as a noble rather than the leader of the nobles um, but what you get eventually is you're going to get uh, the house of Ho- um, Hollander actually is going to bring about uh, the rise of Prussia. Um, the first one of these leaders and that's really going to help bring it about is going to be Frederick William the Great Elector. It's going to get a little tough to keep these guys uh, in mind so remember Frederick William the Great Elector is going to be one of the first um, of the House of Prussia here. Uh, his background he was strictly Calvinist uh, but he's going to grant religious toleration to Catholics and Jews. Um, He's going to be, uh, he's an admirer of the Swedish system of government and the economic power of the Netherlands. Um, He's going to have a constant struggle between Sweden and Poland uh, for control of the Baltic uh, after 1648 and the the wars of Louis XIV create an atmosphere of permanent crisis. And that's going to become incredibly important. Um, Prussia is invaded in 1656 to 16, uh, by the Tatars of southern Russia. Uh, They're going to kill and carry off about 500 or about 50,000 people. Um, the invasion, is that invasion weakens the power of the nobility estates in in Prussia, and what that does is it strengthens the urgency uh, of the elector's demands for more money for a larger army. So Frederick William, the great elector, says, if you don't want this to happen again, you have to give me more money for a larger army. Um, basically what you get is that Prussian nobles are going to refuse to join representatives in towns and resist in royal power. Uh, so you get these nobles starting to accept uh, royal power a little bit. And then eventually what you get is that the great elector established Prussia as the great power and laid the foundation for future unification of Germany in the 19th century. Um, so all of that sort of constant threat of warfare helps to get Frederick William to be get the laying down of Prussia for the 19th century. Uh, and what you see, or what characteristics of that are in place, Uh, The most significant is that he's going to oversee the the Prussian militarism uh, and create the most efficient army in Europe. Uh, He's also going to employ military power and taxation uh, to unify his people, uh, his uh, Rhine holdings, Prussia, and Brandenburg into a strong state. Um, He's going to increase military spending, uh, which obviously he gets through heavy taxes, the Prussian nobility is not exempt from this either, so you have to keep that in mind that the the, the, the taxes that the great elector puts on his people are across the board, including the nobility. Um, soldiers are actually going to serve as tax collectors and policemen, uh, and thus they expand that government's bureaucracy. Uh, it becomes a more uh, saturated culture of Prussian government. Um the nobles themselves, or otherwise known as the as the Junkers or the Junkers, are going to form the backbone of the Prussian Military Officer Corps. Uh, they are the landowners that dominate of the estates of Brandenburg and Prussia. By 1653, what you get is hereditary subjugation of the serfs, and they are established uh, as a new way of compensation, the nobles for the support of the crown. And so we talked a little bit about that, about how the rise of the absolutist monarchs inside of Eastern Europe give the nobles certain rights over their peasantry, and that's what this is basically. Is 1653 the hereditary subjugation gives a compensation to these nobles for actually serving in the military, uh, and Frederick the the Great Elector is going to actually encourage industrial uh, trade. Remember, he's a fan of the Dutch economic growth. Um, in fact, he's going to import silk uh, or skilled craftsmen and and Dutch farmers. Um, going to entice them to come live in, in, in Prussia. These new industries, uh, woolens, cottons, linens, velvet lace, silk, soap, paper, and iron products, they're really going to help um, facilitate overseas trade. Uh, but that overseas trade is really going to fail because Prussia lacks ports and naval experience. Um, but that's what Frederick the Great Elector is trying to get is sort of the economic prosperity that we see inside of the Dutch Republic. Um, it's not gonna happen though because of its lack of Prussia's lack of ports and naval experience. What you get though after Frederick or after Frederick the Great not the Frederick the Great, but sorry, the Great Elector, after the Great Elector, you get Frederick the First or the Elector, Frederick the Third or the Ostentaneous or, the easiest way to remember this is the first king of Prussia. He's actually going to be um, crowned as the first king of Prussia. Uh, the ostentatious, the elector, Frederick III, is the most popular of the Hollands or Kings. Um, he's Frederick I, which is obviously the f- easiest way to remember him. He's the first king of Prussia. Um, he's going to seek to imitate the uh, court life of Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, he's also going to encourage higher education. He's going to find a, uh, fund a university and encourage the founding of the Academy of, of an Academy of Science. Um, he's going to welcome immigrant scholars. Uh, he's going to fight in two wars against Louis XIV to preserve the European balance of power. Um, remember, as Louis XIV expands, you get this development of this uh, international diplomacy called the balance of power. Um Frederick I is going to actually fight in this, and that 's where he's actually going to get his ta- that 's where he's actually going to get the King of Prussia bestowed upon him. Um, the first is going to be the League of Augsburg uh and then also he's going to get the, the war of spanish secession uh both of those he's going to ally with the Habsburgs in Austria and then what you get is the Elector of Brandenburg uh Prussia is now recognized internationally as the first king of Prussia in return for aid of the Habsburgs. So basically, he goes and he helps up the Habsburgs, and in return, they recognize him as the rightful king of Prussia. Uh, that gives them Prussia standing inside of the international community, which is obviously going to help out their ability to make movements and suggestions of the uh, in the larger European context. Um, the After Frederick I reigns, uh, in seventeen thirteen you get the rise of Frederick the William I, or otherwise known as the Soldier King uh, He's the most important of the Hollanders uh regarding the development of Prussian absolutism. Uh, he sets the stage for Prussia for Russian or for Prussian absolutism, uh, much like his father he's calvinist uh he is obsessed with fall, finding tall soldiers for his army uh intimidation factor whatever it might be uh He's obsessed with finding this. What he does is he reshapes the army, reshapes society, and basically makes it into the Sparta of the north. Um Sparta, uh, the society is going to become rigid and highly disciplined. Unquestioned obedience was the highest virtue. Uh, unquestioned obedience was the highest virtue. Most militaristic society of modern times. Plain and simple. Most militaristic society of modern times. He's going to double the size of the army. It will become the best army in mean, Europe. Is really, it's going to become Europe's fourth largest army, next to France, Russia, and Austria. But it doesn't matter. This the, the the that the even though it's the fourth largest army, it's it's the best army, and it's the most trained, it's the most regimented, it's the most loyal. Eighty um, percent of government revenues actually go to the military, so you can imagine that that's a huge militaristic society. That eighty percent of the government revenues actually go there. Um, Prussian army is going to actually be designed to avoid war through deterrence and so it's not that it's not that the soldier king frederick william the uh, first actually wants these once these soldiers to go into battle he's using them as the deterrence to make sure that people don't attack his country again make sure that they don't attack Prussia again uh... in fact the only time that frederick is actually frederick william the first is actually going to fight in a war is when sweden actually is going to come down and occupy a city in northern germany um, and then the swedes are uh... forced out uh... Most efficient bureaucracy inside of Europe. So Frederick William I can establish the most efficient bureaucracy inside of Europe. He's going to remove the last of the parliamentary estates and local self-government. He's going to demand absolute obedience and discipline from civil servants. Uh, And what that means is that you start to see the development of promotions based on merit. Um, So obedience and discipline uh, get you something else, uh, a higher pay grade or a rise up in the bureaucracy. Um, Some commoners actually rise... Uh, to positions of power. In regards to that, though, even though it's the most efficient bureaucracy, you're also going to see huge or or, or fairly high levels of of taxation. Um, the Junker the the Junkers are going to remain the officers cast, uh, cast in the army, in return for supporting the king's absolutism. Uh, and uh, what you see is Frederick William I is also going to establish or start the establishment of schools uh and this is the first time that you're going to start to see schools. Obviously or, or, or mandated schools. Um obviously these schools are focused on military aspects, but these are nonetheless he establishes about a thousand schools for the peasant children and he wants to make sure that they continue um the their he wants to make sure that they actually continue to get a good education. Um after Frederick William the first you're going to get Frederick the Great, which we'll talk more about inside of when we get into the Enlightened, or enlightened Despots. Uh, but bear in mind that he's going to build upon the power of Frederick William I, the Soldier King, and that'll be Frederick the II, or Frederick the Great. Um, that is the first part of the Rise of Rap. We will deal with the second part of the Rise of Rap at the next podcast. I hope you found this effective, and I will see you later.